Now, God has promised Abram a child, Abraham a child. We're going to see his name change to Abraham in this chapter, but he's promised Abraham a child and land and great offspring. Um, That promise was given to him in chapter 12. Uh, Last week we saw how Sarah and Abraham tried to force the promise by, by giving Abram to Hagar to, to produce Ishmael, a child uh, that was not the promised child. And we saw that the power of God is never in human decisions. It's, it's, it's in waiting on the Lord. God's presence is not active in our faithless horizontal decision making God's presence and power is active in his promises and the way the way that you tap in to to God's power is by trusting him and waiting on the Lord now we're going to see a foundational passage for understanding the Bible Genesis chapter 17 I'm going to read the whole chapter at length. I'd really like you to stick with me and pay attention because if, if you understand this passage and the, the elements, the, sha- the shadows in it <clears throat> that are fulfilled in Christ, then you really will be a biblical theologian. You know, Jesus said that he wants us to be scri- uh, scribes trained for the kingdom that brings out of our treasure what is old and what is new. And so we can see the old foreshadowing the new in this passage in very explicit ways. So Genesis chapter 17. <coughs> when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and called to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you. It may, it may multiply you greatly, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and and kings shall come from you. I will establish my offspring between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me, you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not uncircumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall, be, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him 
as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be a father of twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went from up from Abram. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among them, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Here you see God reaffirming. That's what's going on here. The Lord is reaffirming the covenant he made with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he said, I'm going to bless you, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you shall have this land that I will give you. Then in chapter 15, he cut a covenant so the promise is then elevated to covenant status and a covenant is a promise bound by an oath and we saw God himself walked through the pieces thus taking the covenant obligations and even the covenant curses upon himself thus ultimately fulfilled in Christ in chapter 17 here he is reaffirming the covenant. But before, in chapter 12 and 15, not much is required from Abraham except for go to this land. Here, however, in reaffirming the covenant, you see something expected of Abraham and his people after him. I want to treat this passage then with that in mind, seeing something expected out of Abraham and his children. I want to treat this passage in three headings. Um, number one, the covenant call. Num number two, the covenant promise. Number three, the covenant child. And you're going to see old covenant shadows that are cast by the new covenant realities in Christ and the gospel. So let's address those three headings. Number one, the old or the covenant call for Abram or Abraham. The Lord appears to Abraham at the beginning of this chapter. And Abraham at this point is 99 years old. It's been 13 years since chapter 16. So when that Hagar situation happened, where, Hag where he went into Hagar and had Ishmael, it's been 13 years since then, making Ishmael 13, a 13-year-old 13 boy. But that's 22 years after the promise. So it's been... God promised Abraham a child, and it has been 22 years since then. You see why Sarah and Abraham were getting anxious, almost, in chapter 16. And the Lord reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai. He says, I am God Almighty. Now... The word Shaddai there in the Hebrew is, is ambiguous, actually. We say it's God Almighty. The Hebrew could mean God of the mountain. There is disagreement about what exactly El Shaddai means. But just a little history lesson here, because uh, I find it interesting. Um, who took over the known world in about 300 B.C.? Greece. Who? Greece. Greece. Alexander the Great took over the known world um, and Greece. And what they did for the, the known world was they Hellenized the world. That is, they attempted to spread and successfully did so. They spread Greek culture and language throughout the world. 
And what happened after that was the Jews who spoke mainly Hebrew were becoming Hellenized. And they started to speak no longer Hebrew, but Greek. This presented a problem because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So in order for them to read their Bible, they needed it in a translation that they could read, which was Greek. So as legend has it, 70 Jewish scholars got together sometime between, sometime after 300 BC and translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And it's called, that translation still remains with us today. We have copies of it today. It is called the Septuagint. <coughs> the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, why did I tell you that? Um, I told you that because in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word El Shaddai is referred, or Shaddai is translated as Almighty. So, those Jewish scholars were translating the word Shaddai as Almighty, which is why the English version has retained Shaddai as translating that word Almighty. So the Hebrew is ambiguous, but we trust those Old Testament scholars were in touch with something better than we were, since they were closer to the time of the writing of the Hebrew Bible, and they were Jewish scholars themselves. All right, history lesson done. Now, God reveals himself then in terms of power. El Shaddai is power, which means he's capable of doing something thought to be impossible. This is about God's capability. And it also shows you progressive revelation. God reveals himself and salvation progressively in Scripture. In the beginning, God is somewhat mysterious. He reveals himself to El Shaddai, but he doesn't reveal the covenant name Yahweh to Abraham. He does that to Moses. In Exodus 6, 2 and 3, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, but my name, Yahweh, I did not make known to them. Very interesting. So God reveals himself progressively throughout the scripture. Here he's El Shaddai. He is a God who is powerful and capable, which was different than the other known gods in the Mesopotamian area which were capricious, only ruled certain areas like the hills or the rain or this part of the land. Here is El Shaddai, the mighty one. Then the covenant name revealed to Moses, Yahweh, and only thousands of years later would we get the exact representation of God's image in Jesus Christ. <coughs> so you see progressive revelation throughout scripture what's the requirement of the covenant given to Moses verse 3 or verse 2 rather verse 1 I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless what God has wanted from his people and what he wants from Abram is not a distant deity human relationship he wants to be in personal relationship with his people. In ancient times, deities wanted to be pacified. It was thought. You give your sacrifice on the altar, and he gives you what you want. Rain, sun, children. It's a transactional relationship. Here, the Lord requires Abram to walk before him. And to be blameless. This is a completely qualitatively different relationship that God is calling Abram to, or Abraham to. Yahweh wanted a covenant of loving relationship with his people, and that is the one thing that has remained throughout the scripture. God has always called his people to be in relationship with him. Adam and Eve, he walked with them. 
in the garden, in the cool of the day, if you remember. Enoch walked with God and was taken. Noah walked with God and was a righteous man. And here, Abraham is asked to walk with God and be blameless before him. So there is a devoted, holy relationship that God is calling Abraham to. And the first step of that relationship is what Abraham does in verse 3. Then Abraham fell on his face. The first step of relationship with the Lord is not just mentally assenting to truth. It is a loving, devoted relationship with the Lord. To be holy before Him. That means set apart from the world and set apart to Him. Worship. Interestingly enough, in the New Covenant, after Paul explains the amazing mercies of God, he says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before Him, which is your spiritual worship. God has always called us to worship Him in a devoted, loving relationship, not to be nonchalantly or passively attached to Him. Walk before me and be holy and blameless, devoted to me. That's what God requires of His people. Fathers and husbands, it is your and my responsibility to create a holy, worshipful, joyful, reverent atmosphere in our home and pass that down to our children. You specifically are called to do that. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 9. The Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets on your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What God is requiring of especially fathers is to create a worshipful, joyful, holy, blameless atmosphere in the home. Teach, teach the scripture to your children. As a father... Do your best to be diligent to regularly read the Bible to your children. And we have lots of young children here or in the other room. Teach, teach the Bible to your read. Give them memories of their dad reading the Bible to them. Give them memories of their dad teaching doctrine and truth to them. And then give them memories of you modeling Christ-like humility to them. Correct their sin. Praise godly virtue in your home. I suggest having a goal of three to four times at least where you sit down with your children, read the Bible, and just Ask and answer questions. Have a conversation with them about the Lord. Don't let this very formative time pass. You are called not just to be holy and blameless yourself, Father, but you are called to set a tone in your house that's holy and blameless. Now, Father, if, if your child is out of the house, and even if your child is wayward, your job is still not done. What you are called to do is intercede for them as a father and as a mom 
to. Intercede for your children. And do not fail to believe God's promises in prayer. That prayer does something. That things will happen in your life that would not have happened if you would not have prayed. So intercede for them in prayer, believing precisely what James chapter 15, 16, or 5, 16 says, that the prayer of a righteous man has great power when it is working. Do not give up on your children if they are wayward. You intercede for them. Love hopes all things and love believes all things. And it is the loving thing to do to hope and believe that your children can be transformed and that your intercessory prayer can have a role in that. So fathers, your job is to create an atmosphere of holiness and blamelessness in your household. We talked about this in Bible study. Don't be, you're not ever going to be perfect. You're not ever going to be blameless, but you shoot for blamelessness. You shoot for perfection. Don't shoot for less than perfection. Jesus said you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that has certainly undertones of wholeness and completeness, but don't shoot for less than what God has called you to. Be imitators of God as beloved children and as fathers. So, the covenant call is to be holy and blameless before him, and that has not changed. That's always been the same. God has always wanted his people to be in a personal, active, trusting, devoted relationship with him. Good? Next covenant sign. Um, God changes Abraham's name to Ab- or Abram's name to Abraham. He says, um, No longer shall your name be called Abraham, Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a multitude, a father of a multitude of nations. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of multitude. So what God has done here is he's changed Abraham's name, which was lofty, to correspond to the promise that he's given him, to make him a father of many nations. Many nations, many peoples will come from Abram. And I cannot resist reading you Romans 4, 16, and 17. Looking ahead, thousands of years later, through the work of Christ, Paul says, the law can't do any of this. It just breeds wrath. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on the grace of God and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is the promise given to Abraham finds its direct fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The promise to Abraham to make him great and many nations will come out of him and they will be a blessed nation. That's precisely what God has accomplished in the gospel through Christ. So he changes the name to correspond to the promise. Next, he gives Abraham a physical sign that corresponds to the promise. Verses 11 through 12. God says, You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, any foreigner who is not of your offspring, they shall be circumcised. Note that circumcision is given to every male child at eight days old, without reservation, even whether you're born in the household or whether you're bought as a servant. You are circumcised because you're a part of the new covenant community or the old covenant community. Now, why circumcision? 
That seems so odd today. If you don't know what circumcision is, Wikipedia is your best friend after this sermon. Um, but why circumcision? It's a, it's a very strange thing to, to require this. Um, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Um, for many people in the ancient Near East, you were circumcised at puberty. And it was the initiatory rite of manhood. So you became a man when you were circumcised. However, Egypt, in Egypt, it was reserved only for priests. And it's very interesting that uh, Moses, or uh, Abraham, has just spent some time in Egypt back in chapter 12, if you remember. So there is a context here, an Egyptian context for circumcision. In Egypt, again, circumcision was the initiatory rite for priests. And it showed that they were completely devoted to the service of their gods. But note that every male in Israel was circumcised, not just the priesthood. And so in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, Gentry the author notes that only the priests were obligated to be circumcised in Egypt. But in Israel, every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day, signifying that Abraham's family consists of priests. That rite that symbolized devotion to God for Egypt as a priest was applied to the entire family of Abraham. Thus, you're not, the family of Abraham was not relegating relationship and devotion to God to a select few. Now, certainly there was a priesthood and they performed the sacrifices. However, in um, Exodus 19.6, God calls all of Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So every, every offspring of Abraham is called to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation before him. So, circumcision was a symbol that all of Abraham's family were called to relate to God in devoted, and they were set apart for God in devotion. It was not relegated to priests. And also, don't forget, in the Reformation period, part of the backlash, the good, holy backlash of the Reformers, is that religion, God, is not just to be mediated to us by priests. It's the priesthood of all believers that was at the center of the debate there is no human mediator between me and God. There's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, you don't go through a priest to confess your sins. You go right to Christ and straight into the presence of the Father. So the priesthood of all believers is what was on tap at the Reformation. And we believe in the priesthood of all believers. When I'm Although I'm giving you the word right now, I don't mediate God to you. And that is why I'm so hungry for you to make progress spiritually. And for me to make progress spiritually in your life. Develop your holy and blameless relationship with the Lord. Knowing that you're always dependent on God's grace to do that. Um, in a few weeks, uh, we're going to do our annual spiritual growth camp campaign. And I'm going to tell you to live your life as a worship. I'm going to tell you to read your Bible, to pray, the importance of church, the importance of stewarding what God has given to you, whether it's people or possessions, and the importance of living for his kingdom and evangelism. These are how you can grow. This is how you can make progress. I'm going to talk about killing sin by the Holy Spirit and vivifying the fruits of the Spirit. That's how you can be a priest. That's how you work out your priesthood. 
So that's a covenant sign. They're all priests. Covenant call, be holy and blameless before me. Covenant sign, you are all priests set apart to me for full devotion. Covenant child. Covenant child. God promises that a child is going to be born to Sarah. And he changes her name accordingly. And God said to Abram, Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. So Sarai is 90 years old at this point. And Abraham is 99 years old. And he already has a 13-year-old boy. Yet here God is telling Abram that his 90-year-old barren wife is going to bear the child of promise to him. That seems unrealistic. And it seems unreasonable, even. I already have a child. I'm 100 years old. Sarah's 90. I don't even see this happen, happening in any way. Um, so what does Abram, Abraham do? He laughs. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a guy who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah... Who is 90 years old bear a child and Abram said to God oh that Ishmael might live before you some have argued whether this is a laugh of wonder <laughs> you know this it's amazing that a child's going to be born to a man that's a hundred years old but it uh, it does seem like a laugh of incredulity here a laugh of suspicion or a laugh of this is, this is not realistic. This is not reasonable. It's almost, it almost sounds absurd. Abraham's laughter, one commentator says, Abraham's laughter um, is judged by, God, by God's reply to be incredulous. Incredul incredulous. And it's shown by his attempt to steer God into a more reasonable direction. That's very interesting. Abram seems skeptical, tired. He thinks this is unreasonable, so he tries to steer God in a more reasonable, realistic direction. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But what does God do? He reaffirms that through Isaac, who would be born to Sarah, shall the promised offspring come. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son. And I will establish my covenant with him. Now, we've always believed, down from the time of Abram, Abraham, up until now, God's people have always been called to believe what is unreasonable and unrealistic. We, we are called to believe in divine intervention. We're not called to believe what is reasonable or what is natural. We're called to believe what is impossible. We're called to believe what could only happen if an El Shaddai actually existed. We are called to believe in what is naturally impossible and what would not happen if it were not for the divine order breaking in to our world. So the world laughs. And just like this is a laughter, worldly laughter. This is the kind of laughter we see today. It's a there, there now. We know we know you have great hopes for great things. So the world laughs at us and suggests a more domesticated faith constantly. And they suggest a more realistic outlook on life. And they suggest 
Let Jesus' resurrection simply mean that he lives on in your heart. Let the new heavens and new earth represent the transformation of economic structures in our world and economic injustices. Let faith mean hoping in humanity and a better hum tomorrow. Let that be your faith. But we've always been called to believe in a God who does things that are impossible and unrealistic and unnatural. Abram is called here to believe that his barren wife is going to get, bear a child to him when he's 100 and she's 90. You are called to believe in what would not happen if there was not an El Shaddai, as if you are called to believe that there is an El Shaddai who does act. You're called to believe that barren women can have children when they're 90. You're called to believe that the new heavens and new earth means an actual fundamental transformation of reality wherein righteousness dwells. You are called to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, dead on a cross, was buried and three days later walked away from an empty tomb and rose to ascend to heaven. You are called to believe what is ridiculous and unrealistic in the eyes of the world. And they will laugh. So, this is, this is basically liber liberal theology. Takes the miraculous and pushes it down and makes it all horizontal. We talked about this in Bible study. Makes it all horizontal so that the promises of God are more domesticated and realistic. But you're called to believe something much more amazing than that. Faith is to believe what is impossible, not realistic. It's to trust, trust in promises which men laugh at. That's what you're called to. And throughout Scripture, what you have is a testimony of God making seemingly ridiculous promises and then making good on those promises. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of of things not seen. Now I want to take those three categories. So you got your the covenant child, the covenant sign, circumcision, and the or, and the covenant call. Covenant call, covenant sign, covenant child. All these three find their fulfillment in the new covenant. Because thousands of years later when the gospel is penned, after Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we are told in Matthew 1.1, Matthew begins his story of new creation. And he says, this is the book of the beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is pointing to Jesus as the offspring of Abraham the true spiritual promised offspring of Abraham. And Paul affirms this in Galatians 3.16 and says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So while there is a near fulfillment in Isaac, there is a far and ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ as the true offspring of Abraham. So the promised child elevated and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now that's what the early church believed. And that's what they understood. They saw that in scripture. They can make those connections. But what was unclear in scripture was the role of circumcision now. Because that was the covenant sign. Circumcision was the major issue in Galatians and Romans. Because the question is, what do you do with Gentiles who are brought into the covenant? What do you do with them? How do they become sons of Abraham? Some say you circumcise them to be brought into the covenant community because that's what the call here is. 
Others say, no, it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. So you had a major theological problem. Some Jewish believers argued that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Paul was contending that one was justified by faith apart from the law or circumcision. And that's what we are told in the pages of Galatians and um, and Romans. That true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 2, 25 and 29 through 29. Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision counts as uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Skipping to verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not of the letter. This is so fundamentally important to understand that circumcision, which was just an outward sign, it was just an outward physical sign, but it had no power to do anything. It could not change you. It could not produce righteousness in you. It could not produce holiness, fruit in you. But here in the New Covenant, Circumcision, which was only outward and physical, has been replaced by circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Because when you have faith in Christ, there is a change that happens in you. You're given the Holy Spirit. You're transformed into a new person. And now what brings you into the new covenant community is not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So it's not an outward sign that brings you in. It's an inward change by the Holy Spirit whom you receive once you have faith in Christ. That's called regeneration. You're made new. You're, re you're generated again. Or Jesus said, born again. That's what makes you a Christian. Being a Christian is not simply believing something. It's that after you believed that thing, after you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit and you, ch and you undergo a transformation. And the Holy Spirit slowly but surely begins to conform you to the image of His Son. Covenant call. The covenant call to walk before me and be blameless then, you're enabled to do. You're enabled to do that through the Holy Spirit. Turn a few pages to Romans 8. Here's another passage we read in Bible study. There is therefore now no common condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That means that principle of, of sin and death, that power that worked in your life, that the man in Romans 7 struggled with, you're not the Romans 7 man. You're the Romans 8 man or woman. Romans 7 is about what is about a Jew trying to be justified by the law apart from the Spirit. If you're interested in knowing more about that, we have sermons on that chapter on our website. But a man, a Jew trying to be justified by the law without the Spirit is constantly going to conflict with himself. I, don't, I do the very thing I hate. I agree with the law that it's good, but I'm powerless to carry it out. Romans 8 is a transformation. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or power of sin and death. How? For God has done what the law 
Weakened by the flesh could not do. What could the law do for you? It could tell you you were a sinner, but it could not enable you to be righteous. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You have been enabled by the Holy Spirit to fulfill what we see in Genesis 17, to walk holy and blameless before him. Again, please don't get confused. This is not work salvation. This is holiness that you're called to. Great, that great Dallas Willard line is so clarifying. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We don't earn our salvation. You don't earn grace. But once grace is given to you, you are transformed. I was just talking about this with Gary. Grace is an umbrella term. Because this is so misunderstood, brothers and sisters, in our churches today. We talk about grace as if it's a rug that just covers over bad things. It's just, you know... And God is grandfatherly, and, and he's gracious now. But that's, that's not what the scriptures are saying. Grace is an umbrella term for what is specific in the gospel. Grace takes concrete form in Jesus Christ dying for your sins, raising again. And now through faith, you're, you're united to his death and his resurrection to walk in the newness of life. And you are given the Holy Spirit so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We have so, since the Reformation, had some kind of um, theological PSD where now we have um, a gospel and grace over here and there's law and works over here and so never the two will meet. Anytime you're putting effort in, that means there's no grace. And, and since the gospel is good news, that means that, you know, I'm a sinner. I like committing sins. And God forgives sins. Praise God. But it's more than that. It's that, but it's more than that. It's that you're a sinner. God has graciously called you to repent and believe. Having done that, you are changed. You receive the Holy Spirit, union with Christ, and you are enabled to be holy and blameless before Him. So you're called to something. Be excited. Be vigorous about the faith. You're called to a vigorous, holy faith as you joyfully progress in Him. Not fumbling over yourself, although that will happen. And when you do fall, and when you do fumble, you're called to strengthen your weak knees, make straight the path for your feet, and continue on the path you are on as God graciously gives you the, enables you with his strength to do that thing. He doesn't give you the, his strength so you don't do anything. He gives you his strength to actually seek after him and glorify him with your life. Again, I think it was Dallas Willard who said, apart from him, we can do nothing. Amen? But if we do nothing, it will be apart from him. So, covenant call. Holy and blameless before him. You are enabled to do that by the fulfillment of the covenant sign. Circumcision of the flesh, now changed to circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And now... We are enabled to live a holy and blameless life before God. Praise God that we have a bright and shining future as daughters and sons of him. And we're only able to do this because of the covenant child, Jesus Christ, 
who came, died for your sins, rose again, fulfilled the promises to Abraham, and unites him to yourself through faith. Powerful, fundamental passage about the gospel being fulfilled in the new covenant. May we live a life of relationship with God. May we live a life that is set apart to the Lord. And may we do it vigorously with hope. Hope for people, children that have gone astray. Hope for our families. Hope for a new heavens and a new earth. Hope in the midst of turmoil that seems to want to drag you down to the depths of hell. God has risen in Jesus Christ and he has risen you up with him to walk in the newness of life. So you're enabled to a life of peace because we can trust our Heavenly Father. You're enabled to a life of non-anxious living because God is good and he watches out for you. You're enabled to change. The gospel is the key to change. You're enabled to imitate God. But you weren't that before. Now you are by God's grace. I need to stop. God is good. I love you guys. Thank you. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before you. I thank you very much for your gospel. Thank you for your covenant call to be holy and blameless before you. And we know this is not a drudgery, but a joy to live for you, to live a life of purpose. We thank you for the covenant power of your son's death and resurrection, that we have died with him and risen again to walk in the newness of life, that we have been changed through the Holy Spirit, and that we can make progress and be imitators of you. And thank you for the covenant child, Jesus Christ. May we exalt him and lift him up. And may all of our change be unto his glory, Lord. Not for our sake or for our glory. But for his name be the glory. We love you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling... He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only wise God through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty and power and dominion now before all time and forevermore. Amen and amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.